Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's start with this. Uh, This week, two lawsuits filed against Iowa's law banning books with sexual content from school libraries. Let's check in with IPR's education reporter, Grant Gerlach. Hi, Grant. Hi, Ben. Walk us through these. Tell us about the two lawsuits, beginning with the first. Yeah, so the the first that came through this week, uh, these are both filed in federal court. The first one came from the ACLU of Iowa and Lambda Legal, which is a civil rights group that specializes in LGBTQ issues. And they're suing the governor over this law on behalf of Iowa Safe Schools, which is a nonprofit that advocates for LGBTQ youth, as well as eight Iowa students and their families. And they're focusing on a few aspects of this law. There's the the part about uh, removing books that are are including descriptions of sexual acts as defined in Iowa Criminal Code. They're also uh, going after the section that uh, prohibits schools from providing instruction relating to sexual orientation or gender identity, as well as a section that says schools must notify parents if a student asks to use a different name or pronouns at school. And they're really focusing on how these different provisions of the law uh, impact Uh, especially gay and transgender students and their experience in school. They say it unfairly targets books that are inclusive and supportive of LGBTQ students, and it argues that it it censors speech that is supportive and inclusive of those students. They say it's even harmed participation in uh, gender sexuality alliances or GSAs, which are clubs in schools that are supportive of LGBTQ students. So they really believe it's Uh, infringed on students' rights to explore their identities and to express themselves at school. And I understand, Grant, the second lawsuit this week includes four well-known authors. Tell us about that one. It does. This is a lawsuit from the Iowa State Education Association and also Penguin Random House, which is a, a huge publisher of books, and four authors that work with that company, Jody Pico, John Green, Melinda Lowe, and Lori Holtz Anderson. And these authors say they have a right for their books to be available to students in school libraries, just like students have a right, uh, according to their lawsuit, to to choose what they want to read from a school library. They're arguing that a library is a place that is protected by the First Amendment more than other locations in a school or other parts of school curriculum, that it's a place to explore different ideas and that the government can't interfere with what ideas are made available to students in that setting. So that's part of their First Amendment argument in their lawsuit against this law. Mm -hmm. Grant, who specifically are these lawsuits directed at? They're directed at the state generally. Uh, Specifically in the second lawsuit, that one's directed at the state um, Department of Education and the uh, State Board of Education, which is approving the rules that are around carrying out this law administratively. So they're really getting at the enforcement and the um, implementation of this law. Enforcement is set to take effect in January, although there are still some rules that need to be finalized by the State Board of Education. And so they're looking to have this law blocked by the time that enforcement would happen. 
So what we're looking for is for some hearings to be held uh, on these separate lawsuits and for judges to make their decisions about whether they're, they're going to step in to block any actual enforcement of this law. Mm-hmm. How has Governor Reynolds, a proponent of this law, of course, responded? Well, she continues to stand by it. She released a statement when the first lawsuit was issued, and it, it holds for the second lawsuit as well. Uh, just to, to tell you part of what she was saying, uh, she's referred to many of these books that are targeted in the law as pornography or pornographic. So she says protecting children from pornography shouldn't be controversial and that books with graphic depictions of sex acts have no place in our schools. So she's standing behind this law as it's written, and she would like to see it carried out as written. IPR education reporter Grant Gerlock uh, talking about the two lawsuits filed this week uh, against Iowa's uh, new law banning books with sexual content uh, from school libraries. Grant, will be following this story, and we'll look forward to your reports. Thanks, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. A lawsuit filed last week claims um, an insurance company engineered a record-setting medical malpractice judgment in our state, and this, according to the lawsuit, in order to spur our state legislators to pass tort reform legislation. Let's learn about it from Clark Kaufman. He's been covering it. Clark is deputy editor with Iowa Capital Dispatch. Welcome back, Clark. Thank you. Good to be here. The story starts with the tragic death of a newborn in Iowa City back in 2018. Tell us what happened. Well, essentially, uh, this was a, a child that was born with brain damage, uh, as you indicated, back in August of 2018. And the boy's parents uh, sued the clinic that was involved in the delivery of the child, the obstetric and gynecological associates of Iowa City and Coralville, they were alleging that their son's brain damage was caused by negligence on the part of the doctors in the hours leading up to the birth. And so they filed a lawsuit and it took a few years to work its way through the court system. But in March 2022, uh, Johnson County jury awarded uh, damages of $97.4 million to the family. Uh, and that's believed to be the largest medical malpractice judgment in Iowa history. Uh, it was later reduced by the court to $75.6 million, but still uh, a, a hugely significant award in that case. Okay, let's fast forward to last week, the latest lawsuit filed by whom and what does it allege? Yeah, this latest lawsuit is filed by the new attorney for the clinic that was the defendant in the lawsuit. And the clinic's new attorney, Nick Rowley, is alleging, and and there's evidence to support this, uh, that court filings by both parties in the original malpractice case suggest that both the clinic and the family, as well as the doctors who were involved, uh, were interested in settling this case out of court for an amount that would be covered by the clinic's insurance policy. The insurance company, however, which was in the driver's seat in terms of whether or not a settlement was going to be agreed to, the, the insurance company resisted and it rejected any proposals to settle the case for any amount. So that's what resulted in this malpractice case going to trial. Uh, Well, now the clinic's attorney, Nick Rowley, is arguing 
that this was part of a deliberate strategy by the insurance company uh, wanting to use what they could foresee would be a record-setting verdict to persuade state lawmakers to pass tort reform legislation that in the long run would financially benefit the insurance company and other insurance companies that do business in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And this legislation, um, we, we, I mean, the connection is, is I suppose, debatable, but this uh, House legislation, House File 161, uh, did yeah. become law? It did. And, and House File 161, it, it caps non-economic damages and lawsuits against health care providers for any medical incidents that result in loss or impairment of bodily functions, that sort of thing, at $1 million for clinics and individual doctors and $2 million for hospitals. That's, that's a cap for non-economic damages. And when lawmakers were debating this particular piece of legislation, uh, there was repeated mention of this particular verdict and the need to uh, approve some type of tort reform in order to prevent doctors and clinics from fleeing the state. Mm -hmm. I suppose we don't know whether this legislation would have passed without this case at the center of it, but that's not what they need to prove here, is it? No, it's it's not. I mean, it, it it's not going to be an easy case in the sense that you know. It's, it, I think the uh, the attorney for the clinic will be very. It'll be very easy to show that this legislation was passed and that this particular verdict was discussed when lawmakers were debating tort reform. But but they still might have a. Um, sort of a tall order in terms of connecting those two elements and showing that one action motivated the other. Uh, you know, it's very easy to prove that the, uh, that the uh, insurance company refused to settle. It's going to be a lot more difficult to show that the insurance industry refused to settle for this specific reason. Mm-hmm. And in this latest lawsuit, what are the damages being sought, Clark? Uh, no, uh, the damages aren't specific at this point. Um, we, we know that um, that they're seeking what would probably be significant damages just because of the policy payouts and that kind of thing. But um, uh, but, but yeah, so far uh, damages haven't been specified. Mm-hmm. So so what I hear you're saying, what it boils down to, in essence, this insurance company on behalf of other a lot of insurance companies, essentially conned Iowa lawmakers? That's what's being alleged? Uh, essentially. Uh, you, know, there's, you know, they're using, uh, Nick Raleigh uses the term bamboozled and that sort of thing to basically say that, you know, the insurance company, once it realized it was probably going to be on the losing end of this, decided to uh, make the, the best long-term strategy out of this by... Uh, by making sure it was the sort of verdict that could result in tort reform, which they had been advocating all along. So the lawsuit claims that the insurance company basically held seminars and uh, lobbied for the implementation of this uh, tort reform legislation uh, and involved the governor in this process. And that was, you know, that was all designed simply to benefit the insurance company at the expense of their own client. Mm-hmm. Uh, very quickly before we go, Clark, how have uh, the defendants responded to these charges? Uh, they've responded. They haven't responded to this specific lawsuit yet, but the allegations have cropped up in 
sort of peripheral litigation in state and federal court. And in that context, they have denied any sort of wrongdoing. Um, a judge in a related bankruptcy filing did raise some questions about the insurance company's actions, um, uh, but, but the insurance company has denied any wrongdoing. Okay. Uh, a lawsuit to watch. Clark Kaufman covering it. He is deputy editor with Iowa Capital Dispatch. Thank you, Clark. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, presidential historian Tim Walsh with his thoughts on the legacy of Henry Kissinger, who died this week, and the passing of Sandra Day O'Connor. News of that earlier today when we return. It's a News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. In just a few minutes, IPR's Clay Masters joins us to talk politics less than 50 days before the Iowa caucuses. But first, the passing of an immensely formative figure in our country's and our world's uh, 20th century geopolitics, The death of former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger this week has drawn both admiration and scorn. Kissinger died on Wednesday at the age of 100, one of America's most powerful diplomats during his years serving under Presidents Nixon and Ford. He shaped our country's foreign policy in ways that led to breakthroughs, including normalizing U.S.-China relations, also advancing detente with the Soviet Union. Joining me now with his perspective on Kissinger's legacy, Tim Walsh, historian, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library in West Branch. Tim, welcome back to our program. Thanks so much, Ben. Well, Henry Kissinger, for eight years, what a formative figure. Uh, First as National Security Advisor, later as Secretary of State, and for a time, both of those uh, roles, uh, a, a dominant figure here. We can point to the Middle East. Uh, we can point to China, the Paris talks, getting the U.S. out of Vietnam, detente with Soviet, the Soviet Union. I guess the spectrum of views about Kissinger highlights his complicated legacy. Uh, what do you have to say about that? How do you see his legacy? Well, it, it's interesting, Ben, because just the sheer breadth uh, and length of his influence, he advised a dozen presidents. That's a quarter of all the presidents who served uh, in United States history, from JFK up through uh, President Biden. He knew all the leaders of China from Mao Zedong up to President Xi. So, and and every presidential candidate, major figures would come to his offices in New York uh, to meet with him to discuss ideas. He he was the ultimate curator of of political and international power. Uh, without ever actually leading a nation as such. So uh, he's an extraordinary figure on the world stage. And, uh, and living to the age of 100, he saw remarkable changes throughout. Many of these changes were things, as you suggest, he had a hand in, from starting with uh, the, the Vietnam War all the way through 
you know, even uh, the most recent events of the day. Yeah, uh, his critics, and there are plenty of them, uh, say his time overlooked the rise of brutal regimes in other countries, uh, that his approach ran counter to our democratic ideals and uh, left lasting damage uh, throughout the world. Without with question, I wouldn't say he was uh, so much a, a, a student of our Constitution as he was Machiavelli's The Prince. He, he wrote a, a dissertation uh, and, in fact, a, a major works uh, when he was at Harvard on, uh, on Prince Metternich and on uh, uh, other major political figures of the, the 18th and 19th century. And so in that sense, he, he wasn't applying American values. He saw things in very practical ways of accomplishing, using levers to achieve goals, his goals. Um, at the same time, he was, uh, uh, you know, very cunning, egocentric, tend to kiss up and kick down, as they say. So he, he was, ironically, in a way, he's a man who wins the Nobel Peace Prize, but at the same time is accused of being a war criminal. So it's, it's really, or at least accused of war crimes, I should say. Um, you know, and he had a hand, or at least uh, there's more than an allegation that he had a hand in the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile, for example. Uh, that he one time advocated limited nuclear war. I mean, the, so, so in a way, uh, we're, we're looking at Henry Kissinger and we're saying, how could a man who accomplished so much also have such problematic views? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on the personal side, and you have a, a personal connection with him, at least briefly, you met uh, Henry Kissinger. When was that? One of the, yeah, well, one of the, the interesting things about Henry Kissinger that a lot of people probably didn't see because they saw him behind a podium was he had kind of a wicked sense of humor. And in fact, it was a cynical sense of humor. Once when accused of, of doing something uh, nefarious, he said, well, you know, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little while. Uh, you know, with a smile on his face. But what happened with me, I was at the uh, uh, director's conference and a, uh, an academic conference at uh, the Texas A&M University with George H.W. Bush Presidential Library. And Kissinger was invited and met with the library directors, and he had just come in and gotten off a plane from uh, Houston, which took him to College Station. Now, anyone who's ridden on small commuter planes know how tight those are. And uh, he walked into the room and said, Gentlemen, I want to tell you that these commuter planes should be declared a war crime. You know, and everyone laughed about it. He had a, 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 a real uh, funny sense of humor. Interesting man, always intellectually engaging. And that's, I think, what attracted people to want to meet with him. Yeah. Tim, also another passing we have to talk about briefly before our time is over. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. We heard the news today that she passed at the age of 93. Yeah, what a shock. I I suppose when somebody's 93, you don't think that they're necessarily going to live a much longer life. But she had made such a tremendous contribution to the court, obviously the first woman appointed to the court. What a remarkable career, graduating, I think, in the early 1950s at the top of her class from Stanford Law, unable to find a job because she was a woman. Uh, such hostility and prejudice against women at that time. But she, um, she worked hard. She, she made a name for herself in Arizona, where she was born and raised, uh, through the state senate there, became state senate leader and a state judge. And she really was one of the few members of the Supreme Court 
sitting on the court at that time who had served in elective office. So very practical inner decisions, often at the center of the court, uh, you know, just uh, good, solid, practical advice uh, that is sometimes missing from court decisions. Tim, I understand you, you met her at one point. I, I did. One of the, one of the uh, good fortunes of being a presidential library director is that you often get to go to conferences where some of these prominent individuals uh, are, are speaking. And this was a case where I was at a bed and breakfast uh, and happened to have breakfast with Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, and rather than talking about lofty uh, court decisions or uh, t- talking about uh, history, she wanted to talk about her husband, John, who had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, she was just such a compassionate person, and you could see what a loving relationship they had. I also had my copy of the Constitution, and I, I asked her to sign it on an impulse, and she not only gladly did it, but she said, I want to show you something. And she reached into her purse and pulled out her own copy of the Constitution and said, you know, I never go anywhere without a copy of the Constitution. Mm. Priceless. What a wonderful person. We'll miss her. Indeed. Historian Tim Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library. Tim, thanks so much. Good to be with you, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's back. Caucusland has returned for a limited run second season. We hope you've noticed and have subscribed to the IPR podcast. Caucus Land. The host of Caucus Land joins me now, Clay Masters, IPR's Morning Edition host, of course, our lead political reporter here at IPR. Hi, Clay. Hey, Ben. You know, I'm thinking back to uh, the last Caucus Land. Set the scene for this Caucus Land by first comparing it to the political landscape we saw just four years ago. It's quite different, isn't it? It is. And if you people that listen to that first season will remember uh, former colleague, uh, Iowa Public Radio, former reporter Kate Payne, and I tackled that. That was a two-hosted podcast. And uh, Kate obviously no longer working with the organization, but we set this big groundwork for what we wanted to do with a second season if we got there. And you'll remember the Iowa Democratic Party has lost the uh, first in the nation caucuses. Uh, the DNC has booted Iowa to the end of the line. And so the Democrats, though, four years ago, everything was still very, very much relevant. It was a very crowded field of Democrats running. You'll remember, I can't even list them all off off the top of my head. And <laughs> right. it, was a, it was a much different experience then because we were real, really still talking about the history of the caucuses. Uh, we were talking about this crowded field. There were a lot of different platforms that we could get into. And now here we are four years later, and the field is just so much different because, again, we're only talking about the Republican side. And even if the Iowa Democratic Party had held on to the caucuses for being first in the nation, there is an incumbent uh, there is an incumbent Democrat who's running, of course, the current president, Joe Biden. So Democrats were already going to be not as relevant this cycle. But the Republicans were seeing such an unprecedented things as listeners of River to River have noted for, through your Politics Wednesdays. This is just a much different field of candidates when you have the former president running and is the front runner and is a lot of his platform goes back to talking about how the last election uh, was rigged. Of course, Joe Biden won the electoral vote college. Uh, he also won the popular vote in 2020. But it's just such a different uh, cycle this time around. And so this is a limited run series. We've got four episodes that are coming out. The first two are already out there. The first one has a lot to do with just the way 
everything went down on caucus night 2020 and what led to Iowa getting removed from first in the nation for the Democrats. The second one deals a lot with why you've seen such a change in Iowa becoming more of a Republican dominant state. So those are the first two episodes and a third episodes coming out in the next week or so that looks more at this race that we've been talking a lot about where you have the former president who's remained at the top of all kinds of polling. And we look into just kind of some of the dynamics that are happening as happening as Republicans uh, are wanting to make sure that they cling on to first in the nation for their party moving forward. Right. Time and running out for former President Trump's Republican rivals. Let's talk about that a little bit. Less than 50 days before the Iowa caucuses. What strategies or narratives are you seeing as Republicans gear up for this final stretch, uh, trying to make a dent in the huge uh, poll support that the former president has in Iowa? Yeah, this race kind of felt like it was like races in the past where you did have kind of a crowded field coming together. Uh, In one of the episodes, I talked with uh, Kedron Bardwell, a political science professor at Simpson College, who talked about the lanes of traditional politics in the caucuses and in early primaries. There aren't really those kind of, you know, oh, here's the evangelical lane. Here's the Chamber of Commerce lane. He referred to it as more of like a 12-car pileup early on, that there just wasn't any way to kind of distinguish uh, the different candidates from one another. And of course, you have the riots on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol kind of hanging over all of this. And when you do talk to people at events that I've been going to over the last year or so, I do hear from people who are ready to move on from the former president that are interested in somebody that is not as divisive. They're not talking about uh, the fact that he is continuing to talk about the 2020 election. I have talked to some folks who have said that they want people to just move on. But what's so different, too, about this time is that you have such a big endorsement uh, from Governor Kim Reynolds backing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And you're really not seeing a whole lot of movement within the polls. So you have a very popular governor within the Republican Party here in Iowa uh, trying to insert herself more than any other governor has since back in the 90s when Terry Branstad endorsed Bob Dole, who is really trying to, in, in my estimate, continue to make Iowa a competitive place and angering the former president who helped color this state red with his victory in 2016. And really, there are two candidates that are left uh, with Nikki Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who are really seemingly kind of battling over this second place. And Donald Trump continues to dominate in the polls. And of course, the thing that I keep thinking back to is the last two caucus cycles that I have covered in Iowa. I go to a lot of these events that are happening right up until the date. And that's when you start seeing some kind of a break in what voters are thinking as they get ready to caucus. You know, four years ago, people were still trying to make up their mind the week before the Iowa caucuses. And what I'm really interested to see is if you see any kind of a break like that as we get close to January 15th. And I mean, because right now, uh, this isn't a competitive race at all. I mean, if Donald Trump just runs away with a victory on caucus night, that's going to send a really interesting signal about what that means for the caucuses. Uh, And I would also just say that Donald Trump, while he is spending some time in Iowa, he's not doing the barnstorming. He's not doing Mm -hmm. the traditional, you know, what a lot of people will call the full Grassley, the 99 county tour. And it'll be interesting to see if that lack of retail politicking makes people give a second guess as to why things should start in Iowa to begin with. But, Clay, isn't it the case with the Iowa caucuses that it's it's about exceeding expectations? And let's say Nikki Haley uh, beats Ron DeSantis by a significant percentage. Uh, wouldn't she have momentum going into New Hampshire uh, and then to her home state? 
possibly the Nikki Haley campaign is getting some support from the Koch network, you know, what we used to call the from the Koch brothers, Charles and David Koch. Um, they are throwing their support behind uh, Nikki Haley. There's a lot of money behind the Koch network. Uh, the DeSantis campaign has started using uh, more funds for from an outside pack to, to put advertising out for him. But I think the really big thing as you're kind of thinking about this is, how much of a victory uh, would if Trump is is first place and the second place person is in, at like 15 percent? I don't know if you can even claim momentum out of Iowa moving forward. And so there, yes, there is something to be said about outperforming expectations. But if outperforming expectations is 20 percent or 17 percent, that's not that big of a victory. And it really will, I think, create a lot of roadblocks for anybody moving forward. And you also think of the amount of money that uh, and attention that people are putting into these early states like Iowa and like New Hampshire, if there is a, a very low turnout for any of the second place candidates, um, I just I think it'll be a really hard path, even harder path moving forward past Iowa and New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. A quick word, perhaps, before we go, Clay, about the Democratic side of things. Of course, the incumbent president, uh, they're expected, fully expected to get the nomination. Uh, But what do Democrats do on caucus night and how will those results be um, uh, publicized? I have spent so much time over the last couple of years paying attention to a rules and bylaws committee within the Democratic National Committee. And Iowa has been kind of making the case for themselves going back home, trying to rejigger it a little bit, and then coming forward with it. And so what we're going to have is the Iowa Democratic Party will hold a caucus on January 15th, the same day as Iowa Republicans. And the thing to remember is that caucuses, like not in a presidential election, they're just meetings where people talk about party platform, they elect delegates. And it's going to be one of those meetings on January 15th for the Democrats. And that's all that's going to happen on January 15th for the Democrats. They will get a presidential preference card. You have to request it. And then you will fill it out. You'll mail it back in, give it back to the party. And then they will release the results of the Iowa caucuses for the Democrats' presidential preference on Super Tuesday, March 5th. So the Iowa Democratic Party is meeting state law by agreeing to hold a caucus on the same day as Republicans, but they're also meeting the Democratic National Committee's desire to not have Iowa early in the window by releasing those results on March 5th. Do you get all that? It almost needs, like, you need to, like, have a piece of paper out and make sure that you're <laughs> well, writing you, it down. That, t- that tees up perfectly. Uh, my reminder to subscribe to Caucus Land. Go. Clay Masters, the host of Caucus Land, of course, our morning edition host. Thanks, Clay. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Subscribe now to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up after a short break, an Iowa State University veterinary doctor on the mysterious canine pathogen going around. Uh, And we'll learn about the IPR Studio One's local musician advent calendar. It's new this year and debuts today. CeCe Mitchell joins us. That's when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. 
Uh, you probably heard about this, an unknown and potentially deadly contagious canine respiratory illness uh, that started in one western state. Now it's uh, apparently spread to more than a dozen states, including Iowa. Let's find out more about it from Dr. J.S. Palerm. He's Associate Professor of Veterinary Internal Medicine at Iowa State University. He specializes in veterinary medicine for dogs and cats. Dr. Palerm, welcome, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we're hearing again and again in the accounts here, it's mysterious is the word used to describe this virus. Talk about its spread and why mysterious is an apt way to describe it. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of, of confusion with the reports that are coming out uh, on this. And I think it, we could maybe start by taking a step back on things and looking at well, what do we know about respiratory diseases in general in dogs? Um, you know, we know dogs um, for decades, we've identified a syndrome that we call canine infectious respiratory disease complex, or many of your listeners who are dog owners are going to know this as kennel cough. And this is a, uh, a syndrome of, of respiratory diseases. So dogs are going to, you know, start developing things like a cough or maybe uh, having labored breathing. They may have a fever. And it's caused by not one specific pathogen, but we've identified multiple, like about a dozen different bacteria as well as viruses that can cause this, uh, this syndrome. Now, that is something that, as I said, has been in existence for, for decades in North America. Any given day, there's probably thousands of dogs across the country that, that have this disease. Um, and it goes overall you know, underreported because it's not something that we usually talk about a whole lot. Um, this new, what's going on now is not really clear. Um, there's certainly people are talking a lot more about dogs having respiratory infections than with the signs that I, met, that I mentioned. Um, what some of these cases are, are a bit peculiar is that um, they are either not responding to the um, antibiotics that are being given to them, uh, or when we're doing diagnostic tests to identify some of these common pathogens, these tests are coming back negative. So I think that's why some people have said, hey, could this be something new that we're dealing with? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we, we, we just don't know what it is. There are too many unanswered questions. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, we don't know. You know, the possibilities is this is just kennel cough. And honestly, it could just be that we're talking a whole lot more about it. We're the week after uh, Thanksgiving now. I think a lot of people have been traveling, talking to family also talking on social media, and, you know, we're kind of making it maybe a bigger deal than, than it has been. Or this is maybe uh, maybe a new strain of uh, previous, um, a previous virus or a, or a bacteria that's maybe uh, reacting a bit differently. That, really, that could be. Or it could be maybe a whole new pathogen. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a fair amount of testing that's been done specifically at uh, the New Hampshire uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. They've been receiving samples now for, for many months because it's actually, even though we've only been really starting to talk about it in, uh, in Iowa for the past couple of weeks, this goes back in some states. These discussions have been going back till you know, early fall. And even uh, in New Hampshire, they've been having these, these reports, whether they're bona fide or not, even back in 2022. So something's been you know, simmering for a while, or at least people have been talking about it. And in spite of all the samples, they have yet to find a clear uh, you know, novel uh, pathogen or cause of, of whatever's going on here. Yeah, and uh, we're seeing in news reports potentially deadly virus. Uh, what do we know about that aspect of it? Well, again, I don't think we should use the word virus because all the diagnostic tests up to now have not identified uh, a viral pathogen here. Mm. We suspect it could be viral in origin just because, you know, when we're treating infections, antibiotics are going to be effective against bacteria, but they don't have any effect against viruses. And I mentioned earlier, some of these 
infections maybe aren't responding to antibiotics, and that could be um, because maybe that it's a viral entity, but we don't have any proof uh, apart from that to, to support that at this time. As far as the, how severe the disease is, um, again, it, it can vary, you know, with the kennel cough, this, uh, this syndrome I mentioned earlier, we have some animals that may be asymptomatic and be completely healthy, and their body just clears it without us really noticing it. And we do still have some that can have severe infections and that can, that can go downhill quickly in these cases, certainly. So again, here we don't know if this is something that is necessarily more pathogenic than kennel cough in general. Yeah. When should a, a dog owner consult a veterinarian? Yeah, I think we could still use common sense. You know, if we go push, go in the time machine and go back to, you know, two or three weeks ago, I'd make the same recommendations. If you're noticing that your pet is, is becoming listless, lethargic, um, and developing uh, respiratory signs, like it seems to be short of breath, breathing really quickly for a sustained period, definitely that'd be a reason to contact your veterinarian. If you're just getting a bit of cough, because coughing is probably one of the most common signs we'll see, it's not always a reason to panic. You know, a cough here and now, here and then is not really a concern, but if you're noticing this cough really uh, uh, impairing your pet's uh, ability to do its normal normal things, that would probably be a reason to, to contact your vet. Mm-hmm. And also for those that are worried too, you know, I'd probably recheck to see what the vaccine status is, is of your uh, of your dog. Many of the pathogens that cause kennel cough, we have very effective vaccines against. So if they're not up to date, maybe time to uh, to make an appointment with your veterinarian to uh, to get those uh, vaccine boosters that are overdue. What about other precautions to avoid transmission of this pathogen? Uh, avoid yeah. avoid kennels? Would you go that far? Yeah, well, I guess when we think about respiratory diseases in general, and that's why I'm giving broad uh, recommendations here, because we don't really know, is this old or is this something new? We have to look at what the risk factors are for what we know for kennel cough. Whenever you've got a situation where you've got a lot of animals housed together, especially for a sustained period, that's going to be a major risk factor. So, uh, you know, animals that are kenneled, uh, going to, uh, you know, to daycare, as a lot of people do also, uh, participating in in uh, canine sporting events, uh, breeding facilities, things like that are going to be potential risk areas, dog parks too. Um, so if your pet is showing any of these signs that might maybe mean that it's got a respiratory disease, please refrain from bringing them to these facilities. If you, are, you know, hear reports of a dog at one of these facilities having respiratory signs, maybe keep your dog away for it for the time being. As a specialist in veterinary medicine for dogs and, and, and cats, I'm, I'm getting the sense talking to you that perhaps these reports are a bit overblown. Would that be a, a way you would describe it? Well, I guess I, I'm just being very cautious. I think we're still being very vigilant. We're really watching numbers, uh, as we always have before this. And when we have cases that come into our hospital that we're worried there could be an infectious cause, we do uh, practice rigorous isolation precautions to limit the possible spread to any of our other patients. Um, but I think we have to take a step back, stay calm, because as I said, even though there are a lot of reports that are coming in, we don't still have, even though there's been a lot of diagnostics done on them, an identified new pathogen, uh, and we don't have clear numbers to compare to, to know of like, is this just a normal baseline, but people are talking a lot more about it, or is there a slight bump in our baseline of respiratory diseases, and that's kind of fueling this, this discussion that people are having. Mm-hmm. When we have so many questions around a possibly new pathogen, exactly. um, yeah, um, we have to consider, you know, whether this is a p- possible threat to humans, don't we? Is, is that being looked into? 
Uh, we're, I think it's something that uh, hasn't, I'm not aware of it being actively looked into um, as far as it being a uh, possible uh, zoonotic disease, so when a disease is transmitted from, from uh, uh, dogs to people. For respiratory diseases, they're not all that common. If we look back at uh, when we had the COVID epidemic, we were finding actually we were seeing uh, dogs and cats getting it, but uh, they weren't transmitting it, transmitting it to their owners. It was the owners that were actually transmitting it to them. Um, but uh, as far as I know, there's no reports of, of people coming ill uh, with uh, similar signs when their dogs are ill. Okay. Thank you so much for answering our, our questions. Very curious. Uh, this pathogen, perhaps new, perhaps not. So many open questions here. Thank you for addressing them, doctor. You're very welcome. Dr. J.S. Palerm, Associate Professor of Veterinary Internal Medicine at Iowa State University. Take care. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River on this December 1st. Before we groove into the weekend, let's talk about the wintry mix that we've seen weather-wise. Find out more about the system moving through the Midwest and what's to come. Alexis Jimenez is with us, meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Des Moines. Hi, Alexis. Hi. Well, I understand that the South Central, Southeast Iowa, encountering this wintry mix yet today, moving out of the state. Uh, tell us about this system. Yeah, we had some uh, mixture of rain and some freezing rain and some snow this morning in Southeast Iowa. Uh, we are expecting a little bit more snow uh, this afternoon in the same area. Uh, but not too much in the way of accumulations. We're looking at generally under an inch. Mm-hmm. So so the biggest of concern for many is uh, having a layer of ice on roadways and sidewalks because we're, you know, right at that point there. Uh, have we seen any of that in the, in the state? Uh, we haven't heard of too many impacts so far, but certainly any untreated surfaces, uh, walkways, bridges, and overpasses uh, could certainly have some slick spots on them. What can we look forward to on the weekend and into next week? Thankfully, we're going to see some warming temperatures, but not before another round of some wintry mix coming through Saturday night. Uh, Most of the area is going to see rain, but some snow might mix in, especially north of Highway 30. And then accumulations at that time will also be minimal. But then once we reach into next week, we'll see temperatures climb back into the low to mid-40s. Are we likely to see the sun anytime soon? That's the hope. Uh, It looks like, especially once we get into the beginning of next week, around Monday, we'll have the sun come back out. Okay. We'll look forward to that. Alexis Jimenez of the National Weather Service in Des Moines. Thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, we're just about to the end of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this December 1st, 2023. Did you know on this date... December 1st in 1955, nearly 70 years ago, Rosa Parks set off a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama by refusing to give up her seat. Well, let's celebrate the anniversary of that heroic action and groove into the weekend with IPR's Studio One host, CeCe Mitchell. Hi, CeCe. Hey there, Ben. This is a bonus edition of Groove Into the Weekend because we want to Talk about something that Studio One started today, an advent calendar for the first time ever. Uh, A a music advent calendar? How does this work? 
Yeah, I'm really excited about it, Ben. So all throughout the month of December, these first 24 days, you'll have the opportunity to meet 24 Iowa artists that Studio One has recorded in the next 24 days. You can follow along to the Advent calendar on our Instagram. That's at IPR Studio One. The videos will be on our YouTube channel, Iowa Public Radio, or at IPR.org slash new music. So of course, today's December 1st, so it's the first day. And it's starting off strong with a great new track from Iowa City act Bella Moss. She was recorded at the Cedar Falls Studios this fall. It's her track Sudden Strangers. You can check that out at ipr.org slash new music like I said or Iowa Public Radio's YouTube channel. Keep following along for the next 24 days to see 24 great Iowa acts. Said I never leave but you know as well haven't spoke to you since March passing cross somehow Dusting off the remnants of you Left untouched and thought of unused Soft words in my ear can't heal what already bruised How long can I grieve for what I never could choose? Said I I believe I believed it too Still craving for the end The bad it's been with you Hold your head there and cry Might not see you tonight All your secrets they unfold in one so nice to open up that first little door of the IPR Studio One Advent Calendar and, and hear Bella Moss, Sudden Strangers. Nice selection. Looking forward to the whole uh, 24 Advent Calendar selections of uh, Iowa artists uh, recorded, I assume many of them, as that one was at the IPR Cedar Falls Studio. Let's get back into the groove with another selection, grooving us into the weekend. What do you have, Cece? All right, so the first song I have for Groove into the Weekend to share with you today, it's the latest single from the all-female four-piece band Chastity Belt. Chastity Belt, they've got a really cool alternative sound which shines through all of their music. This single is no exception. It's called Hollow, and it's by the band Chastity Belt. sample of Chastity Belt, uh, their tune, Hollow. Cece, we have time for one more. What do you have to take us out with? All right. So the second song I have to share with you today, it's a new single from the band MGMT. 
MGMT has had some super big hits in the past, but even the songs that are a little off the beaten path, they're pretty solid by MGMT. So they've got a new album coming out next year that's going to be called Loss of Life. Here's a track off that record, the new single Mother Nature by MGMT. Okay, let's go out with that tune, Mother Nature by MGMT. Nice selection, Cece. Thank you so much for grooving us into the weekend. Thanks, Ben, and be sure to keep along with that Advent calendar. I will, and and remind us again, how can people find out more or get hooked up with the Advent calendar from Studio One? Yeah, of course, you can follow us at our Instagram at IPRStudio1, our YouTube channel, or you can head to the web at IPR.org slash new music. Thanks, Cece. Thanks, Ben. Today's River to River, produced by Samantha McIntosh. Catherine Perkins is our executive producer. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful weekend.